Hi, my name is Sherman Williams. And if you're a military veteran and want to learn more about the innovation ecosystem and how to participate in it as an investor, employee, or entrepreneur, then you come to the right place. Welcome to the Those Who Dare podcast, where we amplify the voices of military veterans who consistently step outside their comfort zone and go above and beyond society's expectations. This series is brought to you by the team at AI Ventures, a C-stage venture fund founded by Service Academy graduates. Again, I'm your host, Sherman Williams, the managing partner at AIN, where I oversee AIN's venture fund along with my co-founder, Emily McMahon. Our guest today is Samuel Cook, a West Point graduate, entrepreneur who has raised VC funding, and uh, he has he had a great deal of personnel in Ukraine and still has some personnel in Ukraine. Of note, we're filming this uh, on 17, or recording this, on 17 March, 2022. So about three weeks past uh, the incursion uh, by, by the Russians. And the agenda for today, other than just getting to know Sam a bit better, is to also discuss his thoughts on Ukraine. Not only, excuse me, not only does Sam uh, run a business that touches Ukraine, but he also was a Russian history professor um, at West Point uh, for some time. So I think this will be a very interesting discussion. Um, and full disclosure, we were having a, a discussion about Ukraine that we were, we recorded, and we probably tossed it away because I was very, uh, I was very, we were we were all a bit, and me included, a bit outspoken in our thoughts uh, about uh, you know Vladimir Putin as you know, him being a bad person and, and how bad the situation was, um, and we thought it would make sense to bring on someone who's you know actually an expert. He studied this area, got a master's degree in this area. He taught in this area at the university level. And he actually ran a, ran a company where he was living in Ukraine uh, just about a week before the incursion. So um, Sam, I'd love to kick it off by just you introducing yourself. Sherman, great to, great to be on here and uh, speak to uh, your audience that that has uh, interest in military and entrepreneurship. Because I, I like to say that uh, entrepreneurship was a safe place for me to go after Iraq because it had a lot of the thrills of combat uh, without as much of the danger, or, or so I thought, until uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was running my, my tech company in Ukraine and, and trying to evacuate people uh, with the pending in, invasion by the, by the Russian forces. So I, I went to West Point, graduated in 2000, uh, grew up nine years of my life in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and then moved to America when I was 10 and uh, went to West Point when I was 18, graduated in 2000. And after that, I was a cavalry officer serving in Germany. My first squadron commander was uh, Lieutenant Colonel at the time, H.R. McMaster, now uh, Lieutenant General retired uh, of National Security Advisor for President Trump fame. But also, he was a famous commander from the Gulf War, was featured in Tom Clancy's book, Into the Storm, and was also very famous for the work he did in Iraq in 2005 and six in the first successful counterinsurgency campaign of the Iraq War. And I, I was lucky enough to be his adjutant during that tour, uh, was following him around the battlefield 18 hours a day during an intense urban fight uh, in, the, in the Battle of Talafar. And then in 2007 and 8, I was a troop commander in Iraq in Shirkat under uh, the 3rd Cavalry Regiment that was based out of Mosul. My unit was on the southern boundary of our area of operations under when General Petraeus was leading the surge. Uh, we were part of that. So then I went to teach history at West Point. They asked me if I wanted to teach Russian or Chinese history. I chose Russian and uh, became fascinated with Ukraine uh, specifically, did my master's thesis on Crimea before Crimea was seized by the Russians. I did a master's thesis on the original seizure of Crimea by, by Catherine the Great and her army and then taught Russian history. So after that, I got out, became a media company founder, uh, built a media company, started building our own technology for small business owners, which became a tech company, Sanity Desk, which is a all-in-one uh, growth operating system for small business owners who want to you know, build their business online. So that's that's how I got to the point where I was running a business in Ukraine. I had 
dual interest of always wanting to live over there and, and started living over there three, three years ago after four, four and a half years in Poland and uh, combined my love of that region and that country specifically with entrepreneurship and then found myself in an interesting situation a few weeks ago. Got it. So can you tell us a little bit more about Sanity Desk and how Ukraine ties into Sanity Desk? What does Sanity Desk do? How many folks that you have you know, there um, at Sanity Desk uh, in, inside the country in Ukraine, uh, et cetera? Yeah, I was a uh, look. Sanity Desk was a company that I I founded out out of Ukraine. It was literally born there. I I moved my media agency to Ukraine in in 2018. We'd been working on a piece of software because we were really frustrated with the problems that our customers had, who were new business owners, small business owners, solopreneurs, typically. Uh, typically consultants who might have a couple of freelancers working for them, but but basically a single operator. And they would have to buy eight or nine different pieces of software that we recommended to them. And that was just crazy. It, it was crazy from a cost perspective. But more importantly, they had to pay us to stitch together, stitch together all the different pieces of software, your website builder, your uh, email autoresponder, your calendar tool, your uh, back office management system, CRM, support desk, all those things they would have to pay us to choose, manage the accounts, manage the logins, stitch it all together. And we just thought that was crazy. So we started building a solution for ourselves and for clients and gradually built out all the different features uh, that we needed for ourselves and our clients. And that became what we called sanity desk because we just thought it was crazy that business owners had to spend so much time and money on software uh, that they couldn't afford time and financially to, to, to manage. So that was really the idea behind sanity desk. And that became a software startup in October uh, 26 of 2019. And then we founded it and, uh, and started selling in, in March of 2020 during the, during the, the initial months of the pandemic. And that was, um, so it was all Ukrainian, well, not all Ukrainian team, senior engineers were from Poland, co-founders from the Philippines, but our core team that we built up was in Ukraine because Ukraine has this amazing workforce that is in a poor part of Europe because it's stuck between Europe and Russia and has had some economic tough times and turbulence over the last 30 years. But the, the second most educated workforce in the world smartest people uh science technology wise you could find very hardworking, very ambitious looking towards the west as their future uh and i just we we were able to build a great team there uh you know at a at a significant discount to what you'd you'd spend building it anywhere else and that's we were really born in in ukraine it's a ukrainian company from from its roots that's amazing and I mean, I just want people to understand the growth here. I mean, I met you in, I think, June of 2020. Mm -hmm. So probably about um, eight months post you started the company. When did you generate your first dollar of revenue into Sanity Desk? Um, and can we talk about how quickly you scaled? Because uh, I think that was that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, we we made our first sale in March of 2020, and we finished 2021 doing about $1.3 million in revenue and, and got to about uh, 67,000 of, of MRR by the end of the year. And, uh, you know, we had a, we had a great um, initial, uh, the, a lot of the people that we, we, uh, we found were people that had uh, resonated with some training that we'd done and, and um, you know, on how to do marketing and business strategy. So we had, kind of a proven way to acquire customers. And uh, that was, we were able to, you know, get the product out there and get over 300 customers within the first two years and really start to, you know, ver verify a lot of our assumptions about the product and, and our customers. And uh, yeah, we, we were able to get going pretty quickly. Got it. So what I often see with SaaS startups is, and that software as a service, I, I, I want to speak to 
as wide an audience as possible. Um, when I see with those is I, I see a couple different things. Now, one of the things, and I'll, I'll try to keep it to two things for, for brevity's sake. On one end, I see people who are technologists that notice an inefficient market and they seek to disrupt it. And then I, and then I see, on the other hand, people who deeply understand a the market. They're not necessarily technologists. They go out and find a CTO and they, they build a product, a software product that, that can automate a lot of the things that they would do. And, and that's why, you know, truly software is a service, right? Um, that software takes care of a lot of the rote tasks. It's able to, you know, help that human being and that services business move a lot faster and effectively create a product that has economies of scope, meaning it can be used multiple times over and over and over again. Um, and it's not wildly customizable in a consulting service type type way, right? What are your thoughts on, so if I, if I have those two buckets, um, what are your thoughts about those two buckets? It seemed like you were the later versus, the, well, not seem that you are the later versus the former, where you had deep knowledge of your, seem, seemingly had deep knowledge of your sector, and then you went out with the CTO and you built a technology product um, that properly serviced the, your target customers versus being a technologist coming in and just disrupting an efficient market. Uh, you have any thoughts about, you know, trying to eliminate bias as, as good as you can? Any thoughts about the best way to go about doing that? Yeah, look, I'm an accidental founder in respect that, you know, a lot of founders don't, you know, a lot of a lot of people who, who start SaaS startups, it's 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 a very popular thing to do these days for ambitious people is they they're looking for the market that they want to go in and try and, and work on. And I was I was the other way around where I'd been so deeply embedded in this market of help, helping coaches, experts, authors. Uh, the software was never a, an original part of the plan in terms of being a SaaS founder. I just thought, hey, I'll, I'll build some software for my clients and, and try and help them solve this problem. And it became clear to me. I remember doing a planning session with a UX designer about three years, two or three years before I started Sanity Desk. And he made this prediction, which I thought was crazy. He's like, hey, you know, all the things you want to build, that's probably going to be about four or $500,000. And I said, no, there's no way it could cost that much. And, you know, <laughs> all these years later, I think about how much I've really spent on de design and development. It's It's been far higher than even that prediction. So, yeah, I was definitely the latter where I just had deep knowledge of a customer and their challenges and became a technologist by need, you know, it, I was solving my own problems. And my, my co-founder, my chief product officer, he's also self-taught. Self I mean, he's been my, basically my CTO for eight years and, and can basically do anything in technology. But he didn't himself uh, come in looking to be a SaaS founder, but we both got pulled into it because of the problems we were solving for our clients. So... Definitely the latter. No, what have been the separate? We'll get to the Ukraine issue with the business being in Ukraine and yeah. a, a war breaking out three weeks ago. Uh, but separate from that, prior to that, what, what would the toughest? What have been the toughest um, pieces of your business as far as keeping your business going and, and scaling, uh, and scaling in a way that you know, Mike and I. Um, and Mike's not on this podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to meet Mike Stedman one day. But, um, you know, we, we don't seek to only only interview venture-backed startups. Uh, we we want to interview all veteran startups. But from a, venture, from a venture standpoint, what have been your challenges with respect to sourcing venture capital funding for your startup? What are, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced? Well, look, I've I've done this the hard way. I raised money uh, from angels, and we did find a very good lead investor. That out of that group, our lead investor is is basically a micro VC firm, but and they've put in about seven hundred thousand total uh, out of the almost two million dollars that we've raised. But the whole time I've been raising from from him and that he basically did it as an angel individually and then their group gradually put in more as partners 
um, in in the family partnership. I think four of his family members ended up investing individually, and then their family partnership has put in money. And I think for me, the, the hardest thing has been living in Ukraine is great from the talent perspective, but uh, raising proximity's power and and finding the right place to put yourself to raise money and effectively lead the taint lead the team america's by far been more successful for me raising money than europe i think almost all my investors have come from uh america and it's just a far better uh capital environment uh than than europe in terms of early stage angel investors to, to put money into your startup. And I've also played in the VC uh, industry a little bit here and and seen that I think America is definitely a better place uh, to raise VC funds also. And again, even though the world is flat now with COVID and, and everyone's doing their meetings on Zoom, time zone makes a big difference when you're, when you're talking to people uh, raising in a very similar time zone to other people just just increases the odds of of you know doing the meetings and doing things right. So, just I think all founders will tell you that raising is a, is always on the mind on your mind and always making sure you have enough to feed the company and get that certainty so you can make strategic moves rather than you know reacting tactically um, is has been just. The, the the big challenge where do you place yourself to effectively raise money and uh that's the 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 blessing of being in ukraine is also the curse right because geographically it's not an easy place to raise money from you have to travel or you have to go make networks far away to do it but from the talent and the team perspective it's definitely been a blessing got it and then let's hop into your company in Ukraine, you know, the war broke out three weeks ago. How many people did you have in Ukraine? Um, you can, you can recap our discussion <laughs> if you want. Um, I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one, but, but I know, you know, I was telling you to, you need to roll out of there. Um, and, and so in full disclosure, everyone, AIN uh, through our syndicate, through the, the graduates from the five U S military service academies, uh, that's the syndicate we run, is an investor in Sanity Desk, a uh, proud investor, uh, actually mm-hmm. twice. We, we invested in you two times. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I guess of the, of the funding you've, you've, you've raised, we probably represent about a good 10% of that capital or a little mm-hmm. bit more. So yeah. um, what, what, tell me about, set the scene, I think, for everyone. I think that's probably the best thing to do. Uh, let's say four weeks ago, just prior to the invasion and, uh, and then, and then, you know, three weeks ago, uh, kind of give us a scene with respect to what you did for your company, because I think when everyone hears this, they're going to be just astounded. They're going to be floored by uh, your leadership and and uh, how you you know persevered through this difficult time. Yeah, well, well, actually, Sherman, this started. Uh, I wrote a blog. In fact, I'll send you this. You can put it into the show notes. Um, Back in late November, Matt Kozlov, our MD from LA, uh, Techstars, sent me a screenshot and it said, hey, what are you going to do if President Putin in, or if Putin invades Russia? Uh, you know, he was basically wondering, are you tracking this? What are you going to do as, as a stakeholder in our company? And I actually responded to Matt's email by writing an entire blog post because my company and my blog newsletter, which I'd been writing, was very proudly stating we'd been in Ukraine and been there for a while. And I even did some Ukrainian history videos about the future of the Internet and why I thought it's going to be built in Ukraine. So I, I owed it to my audience to say, hey, here's what we're going to do in that situation. And one of the things I wrote about in that post was what we were planning on doing. And uh, whether or not the investment was, you know, or not the investment, but the company would would be able to to what we'd be able to do in in case of war. 
And basically, I made a plan and, and told my team, let's start planning for this. And first thing we did was we started planning a retreat for our company, which we do every quarter anyway, uh, but but try to get everyone out of Kiev, the, the center capital city of Ukraine, uh, in you know, in case something happens, we just wanted to be in a safer part of the country. Um, but I also made a commitment to everyone. And I said, hey, even though it's not ideal, because I should probably go back to the States and start raising money at that point, um, I, I was going to make sure that I got back to Ukraine to, to make sure everyone got out because uh, that was my biggest concern. And I remember in, in December, things were, were starting to look very concerning and we actually did a, a raise from AIN you know a bunch of academy grads got on and you know were very supportive and and said hey we you know we'll we'll raise and put, put something in, in in the syndicate to to help you guys get through this tough period and I just explained to them hey this is going to interrupt our raise because we're supposed to do it in January and more importantly it's it's just going to be a challenge because we don't really have a budget for moving everyone, but we need to prioritize people's safety. So that came up. And in, in early January, uh, the intelligence just kept getting worse. The Americans started evacuating their embassy. And I remember as soon as the Americans evacuated their embassy, a lot of people called, uh, called me from the United States. And they're worried you were one of them, but there were, there were multiple people who did. But in my staff, and this was the crazy part, the Ukrainians were the least worried, right? Americans were all freaked out and worried. And Ukrainians were like, no, it's not going to happen. Um, Putin does this all the time. It's a bluff. And I, was, I started following Twitter relentlessly. And I remember it got to the point, Sherman, I've never used Twitter before in my life. But I, I'm hooked on it now. And I got to the point where I was reading Twitter constantly. And I found these open source intelligence channels. that One of the best places for news. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, it's where, news. It's, yeah. it's where all news is broken. And I got hooked on open source intelligence. And I started following Michael Kaufman of CNAS, Rob Lee, who uh, is a military analyst for you know strategic. You know, he's a Marine Corps officer who follows the Russian military relentlessly. And as an ex-cavalry officer who's deployed soldiers, all I needed to do was look at Twitter and look at what Russian vehicles were doing. And I knew that what they were doing was not a training exercise. Um, now, a lot of people were still thinking, hey, it's a bluff, it's a bluff. But the more I saw the vehicles start to move down to the border and they, they started to do things that you would only do if you're deploying to combat, and it was in broad daylight on TikTok and Twitter and, and everything, I just got more and more concerned. And at the same time, um, we we weren't raising money in January because I couldn't go back to the States and do it. And, and basically, my entire focus was on this. And it, it became all-consuming. And I was worried about paying the team. I was worried about having enough money to get them out. And unlike in the army, when you're worried about people's safety, uh, you, you never worried about the paycheck. You know, you never worried about the, the logistics always seem to be there. Um, so I was worried about paying people, worrying about people's safety. And, and I remember walking around my apartment every night uh, just pacing. And my fiance would, would wonder, like, why I wasn't sleeping and she doesn't pay attention to the news at all. And she just delegates that to me. Trust me to do this, the news stuff and the worrying about big stuff. And uh, it was really tough. I mean, it, it was definitely one of the darkest periods of my life because right when we're supposed to raise, we, we can't because I'm just too focused on the situation. Revenues, you know, not growing the way we want it to after a great string of revenue growth. And I just said, man, you know, the walls are closing in. And and we had a conversation in mid-January. Hey, we should probably cut the team and, you know, downsize it. And we we should have right then and there. We should have done it as soon as the revenue wasn't online with what we needed. 
but I just decided, you know, I told the team, I said, look, we got, we got this situation coming up. Otherwise I would let everyone go. So here's the deal in, in two or three months, if we don't get things back on track, we are going to have to restructure, but I'm committed to getting everyone out. So I, I loaned the company $50,000 of my own money and said, Hey, I'm going to just make sure we get everyone out. Cause I, I knew it wasn't a good time to raise because of everything that was going on, all the uncertainty. And uh, then as I, I, on 12 February, I, t I told everyone, Hey, I know you've all been calling me. You called me that night, Sherman, because the Americans said, hey, the attack could could happen in 48 hours. And when I heard that report, the attack could happen in 48 hours and everything I've been reading on Twitter was lining up. I just I called the whole company and I, I said, hey, everyone get on a Zoom call with me if you're not willing to evacuate. So I literally sat down with everyone on the in the in the company who was. How many people did you have in, in country in Ukraine? Sorry to cut you off, but how many did you have in country in Ukraine? So at that point, we had thirty-five, and okay. I have two. I have two companies. So my other company has another twelve. My media company, but but Sanity Desk had thirty-five, and only about seventeen of them were willing to go to Western Ukraine as a safety precaution out of thirty-five. And I, I sat down with all of them and I said, look, if, if a war happens, this is not going to be a small one because there's too many forces arrayed. They went to Belarus, which is north of Kiev. And you are, what are you going to do if the war starts? And they all told me, well, if the war starts, I'll go west. And I, I remember saying to him, well, well, let me explain to you what happens during war. When the war starts, there are people like paratroopers who fly in and jump in weird places. And, and you know, there's checkpoints and there's bombs and there, there's all, all this other stuff that happens. And I remember these blank looks from some of them because, you know, Ukraine's been at war for eight years, but it's all the way out on the east. And, you know, these people are living in Kiev, 600 kilometers from the contact zone. And they look, half of them thought I was crazy. Um, half of them thought I was being alarmist, I'm sure. Um, but some of them definitely were like, okay, well, if that does happen, I don't want to be there. So I, I, I managed to get about half of the 20 who weren't going to go to reconsider. And they did go reluctantly, but they went. And then the rest stayed, right? Um, so we evacuated everyone on 13, 14 February, and then the invasion was supposed to start on the 20th. In fact, a, a friend of mine called me who's, so I posted a Facebook video and this, this thing goes viral. And I had people calling me from 20 years ago who, who were in Iraq with me. And one of them was a friend of mine who's in, in the U S army intelligence. And his job is to watch Russia in one of the major headquarters. And he said, Hey, you're right. Um, get everyone out of there and do it no later than 20 February. And he also told me what was going to happen. He said, Kiev's going to get encircled or they're going to try. And that's the main focus. And so after that, I posted another video. Um, so, so one thing happened when I posted that video was one of my clients messaged me and said, Hey, I want to buy your plane ticket back to America. This is like one of our best clients. And I, I said, wow, I mean, that's really generous of you. And, and I said, no, you, she said, no, no, I, I, you guys have been great. We'd really like to help you. And, and a bunch of other people reached out and said, hey, we'd like to help. Is there any way we can help? So the second video I posted the next day when I was in Boris Paul International Airport was basically said, hey, based on the feedback I've gotten from people, we're evacuating and... Some of you have asked to help. So if you'd like to help, uh, just let me know. And a whole bunch of people said, hey, we'd like to help. So we ended up creating a GoFundMe campaign for the evacuation costs because GoFundMe allows businesses to raise money on there for emergencies, right? And then my friend called me and told me about the intelligence. The next video I posted was, hey, here's what could happen if, if the invasion happens. You know, Kiev's a target. Everyone, every one of my friends who are in Kiev 
please hear this very carefully, be careful. And little did I know that a couple people I've met since then who got out had watched that video carefully, you know, Ukrainians, and they started planning for the evacuation. Uh, a good friend of mine, Yuri, he moved his entire family west as soon as, you know, I told him the news. Uh, so I all of a sudden, out of nowhere, became this news source for Ukraine from friends from 20 years ago that I'd never heard of in the army to Ukrainians, to all kinds of people. And uh, I, I just, you know, was, I got to America. I left about a week before the war started. But as soon as I got to America, I got, I started to really understand that this was going to happen. And I, I flew back to Warsaw to be with my team. I had to go back to America to take care of some personal matters. I flew back to Warsaw. I wanted to be with my fiance. And the team, because I knew that when the when the invasion happened, it would be a significant emotional event, and I and nothing prepared me for that. I mean, when I was sitting there on the night of the twenty third, I I knew something was about to happen because some of my friends in intelligence and some of the things I was watching in Twitter were basically saying, "Hey, it's it's coming finally," and the twentieth was the right date. In fact, Russian invasion plans that they've captured now had the 20th as, as the date that the invasion was going to start. But, you know, Biden administration called it out. They delayed it to to try and make the American administration look silly. They probably needed a, more time anyway. But when it finally happened, I was on Twitter the whole time. They actually needed, they needed a lot more time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they probably could, they probably could have done with another year. Many, many years and more and different people. But yeah. yeah. Well, so I, as I was um, watching Twitter that night, I just, you know, it, it was surreal. I, I w I'm a historian. I've I've watched, you know, I've read about the invasion of Poland and and the start of the Second World War, and I, I've I've read about the start of the First World War. I've I've read about a lot of conflicts, and I participated in one. I was I was watching the Iraq War as it unfolded from an airbase in Turkey and in, in the Northern Front. But nothing was remotely like this because I had people that I cared about that were still in my company, still in Ukraine, like in Kiev. Uh, my fiance's family still is in is in uh, central Ukraine to this day right now. And and I just felt helpless watching it. And I remember seeing two hours before Putin's speech, I knew the invasion had started because I saw some firefights breaking out that got filmed on Twitter. Uh, I saw the checkpoint in Crimea get overrun an hour before his speech because, you know, they jumped the gun on, on a few of their their actions. And, you know, I, I was just up all night, didn't sleep. And the next day it was just shock. Um, my fiance obviously was in shock, couldn't believe it. Uh, tears from the team in Warsaw, you name it. It was it was just it was a, it was a really emotional day. And I remember. I had an advisory board call that day and I got on the advisory board meeting and right before the advisory board meeting, you know, people are just calling me all day from all over the place. And Alex, my chief operations officer, you know, he says, Hey, it, is it safe for me to leave Kiev? And I'm sitting there and I'm like making these life and day death decisions for, for team members that are inside the country and and I just I just kind of broke down. I I was on the advisory board meeting and I was like, "Hey, sorry guys, you know we're just trying to get people out safely and and we're having to tell people whether or not it's safe to leave." And then I just kind of lost it on that meeting. And and thankfully the advisory board was, you know, very understanding. But um, it was a really tough day. And and I would say probably the hardest day I've had in leadership my whole career. In in Iraq we signed up for it. We had weapons. We felt like we had some control of our own destiny. And and here, you know, I remember in Iraq, I used to lose sleep every time my soldiers were out, which was almost every night. You know, sniper patrol, sniper missions or patrols or on raids. Uh, but this was this was a lot worse because you know, I had girls calling me. You, you know, you remember Tanya. You were talking to Tanya, who's who went to TechStars with us. Uh, girls on our team who'd 
been back to Kiev, who didn't evacuate, or actually one evacuated, came back with her father for a medical appointment the day the invasion started, right? So she'd been in safety and came back. And they're they're calling me crying from a subway during a bombing, you know, and asking me, like, if they're going to live and w- what do they do? And And the only thing I can do is just, you know, get them to calm down and, and, you know, just, just get people out of a, a panic where, where they're not thinking straight, but you know, you've, you've, you felt kind of helpless. And I think for about a week and a half after the invasion, my whole job was just evacuating people out of the country. And it, it was literally, you know, getting our team members out and their family members out and talking to everyone. And then other people started to talk to us. So our GoFundMe campaign that we launched, that raised like $30,000 in the in the first two weeks. And and now it, it's raised over 65000 more than enough to evacuate our own team. And we just made that into a nonprofit where we're using our team members that we were going to lay off anyway to help refugees support. Uh, you know, set up a support center and, and that, that that's actually taken on a life of its own. So I don't regret for a, a minute keeping everyone until the invasion started because something really special has happened because of that. And, um, you know, getting everyone out was my first priority. And that, and then after that, giving them a, a future, a soft landing because they've just left everything, their lives behind. Um, was really important to me, and we we managed to pull it off. And you know, Sanity Desk has to do a lot of work now to rebuild their revenue growth because it stalled right at the wrong time. But uh, yeah, we've got a good team going forward, ready to do that. And and uh, you know, this a lot of the team members who couldn't stay with Sanity Desk are actually most all of them are going to go into this new nonprofit to support the war effort. So it was a pretty That's crazy moment. That's fantastic. I mean, it, it's um, a couple different things. For context, I want to let everyone know that Sam went through the Techstars LA program in 2021. That's what he's referencing. And I do work with the Techstars LA folks and uh, help help uh, bring Sam to the attention of the Techstars LA team. Um, and I spent I got to spend some time in person with Sam and his team. Several of his team members were from Ukraine, and uh, one of them is is, is holed up somewhere in a house in, in Ukraine right now. Um, yeah, Alex. You know, with the, with a bunch of, yeah, with the, uh, you know, as one of my SEALs used to say, big arms and little guns, ready to yeah. do bad things to people. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty stunning. And it also, I, I do want to say to everyone, like, Ben Horowitz has a great book. Ben Horowitz is one of the founders of uh, – uh, Andreessen Horowitz, along with Mark Andreessen, for eight, uh, it's commonly known as A16Z. And he has a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and he talks about wartime CEO versus peacetime CEO. Yeah. And I kind of laughed at it when I read a lot of those Silicon Valley kind of tropes. I mean, Mark, Ben Horowitz is saying it from a, a a great place, but being in the military, having you know been on you know several deployments myself, you kind of like laugh at that a little bit, and you're like, well, do they really they really don't understand, you know. Um, and this just goes to show, Sam, I, I just want to say, you know, give you your flowers. Um, you know, what you were able to do as far as, you know, I was talking with you, the, you know, pretty much the entire time. I was, I was feeling I was talking to you too much. Um, no, no, it's, it's and I great. Was, and, and I was, you know, trying to get you to, you know, you know, make that decision and, and get, get the heck out of there. And as far as, you know, getting your people out of there. Right. Um, and and um, you just you did the right thing every step of the way. You're definitely a wartime CEO. We already knew that. Uh, yeah. West Point and, and and the man's army definitely trained you. But you know, I think you the universe works in mysterious ways, and and you were you were meant to be in the spot, man. You know, yeah. Uh, you were you were definitely you were definitely meant to be in the spot. I mean, I've got as you know, I, I don't want to bring up bring it up this situation because he he saw his family there in the country, but. I connected with with a friend who has his you know, family in Ukraine, and they're still there and running into some issues. And uh, you were very helpful there. So, um, yeah, you you truly are the definition, the walking definition of Ben Horowitz's wartime CEO with this situation. So, the country, the company 
sanity dust is really at an inflection point. Let's just mm-hmm. let's just be open here. Yeah. Uh, you know, you had 35 people there of, of, of a company of about 50 people, I believe. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of those people's lives are in upheaval. I believe you only have about six or seven people that are still in country in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and to include, yeah. Our, to include our, right. So actually, yeah, we have, we have about seven people still in Ukraine and, and yeah, our COO is still there, Alex. They're all in relatively safe locations. I mean, the, the entire country can be struck at any time and they're striking targets in all different cities, but most people have found family or some kind of lodging in areas where there's not Russian forces out actually all of them except for one one girl is with her family in eastern kiev but but that's by choice she just wants to be with her family during this time and you know one of the hard things about this sherman really was when to make the move and and when we didn't have a runway or a budget for this it was like if you would have gone too early it was like you're just burning cash you don't have and if you wait too late you might kill people right and that was, and, and I say kill people, I mean, we're not killing anyone. That's that's what President Putin and, and, and the Russian forces are doing. But, you know, that, that was just the responsibility of when do you do it and, and how. And, and the other thing is these people who are in country, God bless them. I mean, they're, most of them are guys who are, who are saying, well, I don't want to leave my country during a time of war. And that's their that's their choice even though they're in safe parts of the country no one from ukraine who's 18 to 60 is a male is allowed to leave because of martial law all of them could be and they know this before the war could be called up uh if the war drags on and they need more manpower and they're they're fine with that right because they understand that that's just their their obligation as a a citizen of their country and me as a former army guy who used to do armored cavalry there's like always this little bit of a temptation like why am i not doing something right and and um you know my obligations to my shareholders and my it's funny my my fiance uh her father i was i was asking him hey do you want to get evacuated we can pay for it and uh you know he was very polite and you could tell that he was um, you know, very nice about it, but but he sent me a text message. Finally, it was like right right when the war was about to start, and, and he basically said, "Hey, thank you for your concern, um, but don't worry. You know, we have faith in our country, we have faith in our military. They're strong. If it if necessary, I'll get my, you know, the women out, and I'll go back and fight. You know, and then he said, your job is to take care of my daughter, and he sent me that text i remember thinking to myself i said wow first of all you know he's either delusional or he's right you know ukrainians are going to be strong and and win and you know u.s intelligence and the world had basically written ukraine off for dead if if russia invades it's going to be a you know bloodbath and it'll be over very quickly uh, but when I read that text, I remember thinking, you know, I think maybe Putin's in for a bit of a surprise if a 57-year-old man you know, is telling you he's ready to fight. And that's how everyone I knew there felt. What we didn't expect was the president staying. Like, no one knew if the president would stay at the beginning of the war. And when President Zelensky on day three said, hey, the fight is here, you know, I need ammunition, not a ride. I remember that when I saw that and I thought to myself, wow, this this conflict's going to turn out way differently than we thought. And uh, he might have just won the war with that that refusal to leave the city. And um, that that's really what's played out now. And, and I don't know what the conflict's going to do. We, we can talk endgame forever. But uh, certainly I don't think anyone expected as of 17 March that the Russian military would be facing potential uh strategic defeat which is a very real possibility now and and ukrainian uh country seems to be in a very strong position there it's debatable among certain military analysts they all have their own choice but more and more of them are coming to the the conclusion that 
Russia actually has a much tougher road to go here uh, to achieve their strategic objectives than, than Ukraine right now. Got it. I, I can already see we're going to have to do a part two of this. because <laughs> yeah. I, I want to I just dive into your thoughts with respect to the history of Ukraine. Uh, and you, are, you have articulated that in your blog. And we'll have that in the show notes. Um, and you've done videos on this. You have your own podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell everyone about your podcast, Borderlands. Yeah, so look, the, the first day of the war, I was in shock. I hadn't slept all day. The second day of the war... I'd actually been planning for about a year and a half to start doing a blog and a podcast on Ukraine called Borderlands. This was not a middle of the night invention. It was something I'd been wanting to do for a while. But as a as a as a tech founder, you just you never have enough time in the day to do anything, you know, hobbies, let alone something like that. But I felt compelled on that day because all I was doing was reading Twitter those first days of the war. I said, look, let me just explain to the people I know what's going on. And and more importantly, let me give the people that I know inside Ukraine a voice. Because the first show I interviewed, Yuri Bogun, uh, who's who's a good friend of mine, same, you know, we were born six days apart in the same year, 1978. And... We, we like to go for runs, not every Saturday, but a lot of Saturdays. He's, he's a former uh, army officer, served in 2015 and 16 in the Donbass on the front lines as a, PO, as a public affairs officer for one of the infantry brigades. And he runs a media company, and now he has a little SaaS startup he's building. So very similar backgrounds. And I just interviewed him the first night of the war, and I wanted to, or second night, and I wanted to get his perspective on what was happening from someone inside Ukraine. And we had a great conversation uh, and I posted it just on my Facebook wall and a couple other places. And a bunch of people just reached out to me and said, please do this again. Right. Because that was so insightful to hear from someone inside Ukraine, what they're thinking and feeling. So I, I just did it again the next night. And we interviewed some of the people on our team who'd evacuated, you know, women walking across the border. It took them 24 hours to cross the Polish border. They're carrying all their la- luggage with their children, 15 kilometers in the freezing cold. And people just said, wow, thank you for sharing. And and so we, we just kept doing it. And And honestly, I think the third or fourth day of the war, I was thinking about stopping doing the podcast. And... My fiance was was just having a really hard time. And one of the reasons she was having a hard time is her family's back. She's out here, right? And you have this survivor's guilt. You have this sense like, what am I doing when everyone's back in the country sacrificing? So I said, okay, well, your business is back in Ukraine. She was selling real estate in Kiev. That's not a good business right now. Um she was looking for something to do because she literally felt lost. And I said, okay, well, I'm doing this show. It's taken me time to prepare. I, I, why don't you help me with it? And she did. And she, she started helping me with it. She helped prepare the guests, you know, put together some slides for it because we, we like to show the news of the day. And it just became a thing. And a lot of people watched it. And And as a result of us doing this, We've had so many people reach out who are trying to donate supplies to the Ukrainian, you know, medical supplies. A friend of mine from the Marine Corps reached out and said, hey, we got a bunch of supplies we can donate. Class 8 medical supplies, we'll send them over. So just so many people reached out as a result of doing, letting Ukrainians tell their stories. And, you know, we've interviewed resistance fighters from inside the Ukrainian deep resistance. These are the guys that stay in occupied areas just to sabotage Russians. Uh, met with territorial defense people, met with uh, volunteers inside Kiev, you know, guys that tried to get into the military, but they weren't allowed to because they didn't have military experience because, you know, get this. Now Ukrainians have to pay bribes to get into the military because there's a line, right? There's so many people that want to go fight for their country in Ukraine, people coming back from overseas to try and go back. Yeah. Russians have a humongous problem on their hands. Well, well, uh, it, I mean, the spirit of the people is like 
every person I've spoken to is volunteering in some way. It's it's a total war effort. There's a term eight versus eighty. You know, you give me eighty real fighters, eighty eight eight versus eight. You give me eight real fighters, eight real warriors, um, and they will, you know, um, dominate. You know, eighty pseudo fighters or conscripts, effectively, right? Um, Oh yeah, all day long. So. Well, yeah. well, you you see that playing out, and and look, the the podcast was just people telling stories from Ukraine, and I just wanted to give them a voice, and I know how to do this because I have a media company, and and it just took off, and every time we did it, uh, more people contributed to the GoFundMe, and more people have reached out trying to help. We've got some corporate sponsors. There's actually someone from the AIN network that you you know you and I both know Sherman who introduced us to a potential corporate sponsor and just so many things are coming together out of this this effort where you know as a as a US army officer what what would I do or sorry if if someone attacked the US what would I do I'd be out there fighting in my old military unit again right we'd all go reform and we'd all fight together every one of us listening to this AIN person what would you do if you were ukrainian you'd be fighting and for me as someone who's who's adopted this country i know i'm not that useful because i don't speak the language but i know i've got a lot of skills there's an international legion forming but but this is my way of giving back to to the country that me and my fiance want to call home you know we want to raise our family there and and you know, I don't want to be the person who who said, what, what did you do during the, the war for Ukrainian independence or whatever they're going to call this when it's done? This is their 1776. This is their civil war that will define their nation. You know, 1865 for America, 1776. This is going to define them for generations. I mean, this is the first thing that Ukraine's had that, that has truly unified the country in 30 years of independence. And... I don't want to say I didn't do anything during that conflict. I want to, I want to play a role. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's motivating. And so for, you know, you as an entrepreneur, a sanity desk, what are, um, you know, God, you know, we, God forbid, uh, you know, we really hope that no one has to uh, deal with what you've gone through. And I also want to send a shout out to, you know, you're you're a Westerner. You're you're an American who was in Ukraine when the war, you know, right before the war kicked off. I just want to acknowledge the fact that there are plenty of Ukrainian entrepreneurs. They have a very strong entrepreneurial culture. There's a strong startup ecosystem in Ukraine, uh, and some of those folks are actually fighting right now. Oh yeah. Um, so I want to send a shout out and give flowers to those folks too, right? Um, yeah. You know, I don't want to do the whole last samurai thing like us Americans tend to do. Yeah. <laughs> They don't as as the last samurais I do relax. They were apparently Japanese out there getting it in, right? So yeah, um, they know how to, they they know how to fight for themselves. But I will tell you, they yeah. do appreciate the the Americans going over to join the Foreign Legion, and they certainly need yeah, absolutely those, those ex uh, military guys for sure. But what like coming out? I mean, you're still in it. You're still in the thick of this. But you you know, I could sense in our phone calls three weeks ago, four weeks ago, you were in a little bit of a a haze and mm-hmm. I mean, you were like, man, I'm trying, I'm, I'm doing everything I can, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Um, maybe it's too soon, but I mean, I have you here. So it is what it is. Yeah. You know, what, what are some of the key, if you just reflect back on the last three, four weeks mm-hmm. and really since, since October, November timeframe, what are some of the key things you've learned? Um, and I want you to throw in that bag entrepreneurial lessons you've learned. Um, Lessons with respect to running a comp- country, r- sorry, running a company in a conflict area. Um, can you just relay and convey some of the lessons you learned? Yeah, well, I think I think first things first is the importance of uh, culture in your organization. Like this could have broken our company and smashed it to bits, right? And you know, it created cash crunches. It created just division in the team about the prospects of war. Some people really appreciated the warnings. Some people were very upset about the warnings, but I think fundamentally everyone knew that what I was doing as a leader was because I, I cared about them as individuals and, you know, I cared about the company and, and, and the team, you know, overall. So in a time of crisis, your culture 
as a company is is everything and and that's not built overnight and it, if if you wait for a crisis to build your company culture it's too late so i think that's one of the big things is we've you know you'll you'll never believe this sermon but literally our our theme and this is on our blogs and sanity desk you can go back and look at it our theme that we developed last summer for our culture was courage right <laughs> you know the courage to be bold and put yourself out there as an entrepreneur that that's our overall theme for our culture in sanity desk we've consciously cultivated that as our overall theme and i wrote some blog articles on this and put it out there i had never in my wildest dreams thought that 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 culture would be so would be so uh it's called appropriate for what we we're about to go through but it, it really was appropriate because ukrainians are as the whole world is seeing right now there's such a i don't think there's any people in the in the world more courageous than, than them i mean you're seeing it by their actions uh every day uh you know fighting seeing it from the top down actually well you see remarkable from the top down from the president down uh, yeah it, that, that I, I, I don't think any I, I think Zelensky would push back and tell you he has so many courageous people in his country. He has no choice but to be courageous at the top. But certainly his people are surprised that he was because past leaders have not been courageous. Like past leaders have not been worthy of the Ukrainian people that they led. And Zelensky is the one that finally is. But uh, I, I think that's the first thing is how important culture is in a time of crisis and you can't wait till a crisis to build your culture. It'll break apart if it's not there. Um, I think the second thing is the bottom line and, you know, Sherman, we had this talk in, we, we had a talk about like, when's the right time to downsize. And that was a very hard decision because I know that I have a fiduciary responsibility to the investors and things like that. But I also knew that for me, I just had to do what I felt was right beyond that, uh, meaning I think if you do the right thing, even when it's tough, uh, it pays off. And actually, we got $65,000, twice as much as we needed to evacuate everyone by doing the right thing and trying to take care of them. And then we're repurposing the rest of that to pay the people who were moving into the nonprofit as, as you know, that's, that's the allocation of that funds. And it actually allowed sanity desk to downsize right on time when it needed to. Um, and we could have done it a little bit sooner, but I, I personally covered that and I'll never look back on that as that makes me sleep at night. And when you, when you do what you think is the right thing, when it's hard, because the right thing's easy when it's easy, right? But it's it's hard when it's hard. And most of the time, the right thing's not easy. Um, I think things tend to work themselves out. And uh, I had no idea that a nonprofit would start out of this and there'd be a way to, to give back at a higher level. And the only way that came through was by me doing what I felt was right, regardless of you know, the pressure that was on to, to potentially do something else at that, that point. So I think that was the other thing that, that I reinforced that, you know, doing what you think is right, no matter what, um, is, is, is really important. And, and then finally, I think the last thing, and this is not to be understated is the importance of advisors and, being able to call someone in a time of crisis. And, you know, I got lucky. I had people like you who would call a lot. Right. And, and it, I know you said maybe you talk too much, but no, I mean, like I had so much support um, that, you know, I, I felt like I was going to get through it. And, and there were some dark moments where, you know, the walls are closing. And I told you so, a couple of times, I feel like everything's closing in because, Revenue's not going where it needs to be. Don't have the money to evacuate people. But somehow I'm going to get everyone out, right? And that was that was really tough. And and what was great about it was, and you you know you invested in us, but not once did I feel like anything but support and pressure. Anything but support, no pressure, and really just like you know 
it, it was amazing to have that that support from you, from Matt, from you know my my board, uh, my lead investor, you know my lead investor's partner at his fund. I mean, you name it. Like, I had so much help that I had to get through it, and I I could get through it because I had I built up that advisory level you know team, formal informal, you know from investors and board members and all that. So. I think those three things, culture, don't wait, build it in advance, uh, always do the right thing no matter what, because it will work out if you do, if you follow your conscience. And then finally, you know, the hard thing about hard things is such a great title of a book and, you know, get advisors who know how to help you through those situations. Yeah. I mean, I, um, yeah, you've been, you've been remarkable. You've gone through a lot, right? Um, and our thoughts are with the folks still in the country in Ukraine, like I said, um, including, you know, your, your COO, right. I yeah. mean, he's, he's, he's still there in country. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the young woman with her family, uh, in Eastern Kiev. Um, yeah. So, I mean, look, what you've done is absolutely remarkable. Um, you know, at the end of the day, with respect to sanity, that's, you know, we were betting at the end of the day, just bet on the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing in pre-seed and seed investing. Um, you know, I, I, I weigh the entrepreneur, I overweight the entrepreneur in my decision matrix dramatically, uh, and the team dramatically relative to any other consideration. Right. And, um, you're a testament to that. And you've been, you've been, you've been tried and tested and you've, you're coming out on the other side. So for the company, for sanity desk, what do you guys need to get to the, to get to the next level, get revenue back on track? Um, start to grow the company and eventually, you know, you know, raise more capital or are you thinking about just getting the profitability? Where, where, are the, where are your thoughts at with respect to that? Well, look, we were, we were on a, in full transparency, we were on a, an ad. We had a advertising strategy that worked really well until a certain point at scale. And that we always knew was a, an early stage move, a temporary thing to get us to the point where the product just sells itself through, you know, the, the features and, and kind of a much more organic and, and sustainable growth through, through SEO and through channel partnerships and things like that. So what, what we realized through this, this stage and, you know, is we need to go pursue a different growth strategy. And what I'm working on right now is, uh, raising a little bit of bridge capital from existing investors and any new investors who, who'd like to come in, seeing this as like, well, we're way farther ahead than we were a few years ago when we were pre-revenue and we raised then. Now we've got you know 60 plus thousand in MRR and a lot more lessons and the product's a lot farther. So we're really just going out and laying down a runway uh, to give the product team, because we didn't lay off any engineers we just restructured support and, um, you know, that staff because we actually, the products really evolved to the point where we think we have real competitive advantages that we can go out and, and, and start winning the feature wars with our competition because we have everything in one place. Features are getting really mature. And we're at that point where we believe product-led growth can can really start to to power this and you know reseller channels through professional marketers who are really starting to take to and see the power of having everything in one place. So really what I'm working on now is I'm going back to the states working on raising money uh you know for this bridge period to get us more time to get us uh the ability to pursue a different growth strategy over the next 3 to 6 months to get that product led growth really kicking off. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. Protect the product team at all costs, lay down that, that runway. And, you know, Sherman, I mentioned this before in all transparency, we were always, you know, raising, you know, sometimes we had higher burn, sometimes we had lower burn, but we never had 12 to 18 months of cash in the bank. We were always like trying to get to that point where we just got a big bet of cash down. And I was planning on finally doing that, getting that VC, you know, seed round four million dollars in in January. And then when growth stops, that be- that becomes very hard. So we're cutting costs. We're trying to get to profitability organically. 
but trying to get from existing investors maybe some some high net worth individuals who like uh you know ukrainian story like you know one of the things i like to say is our team got through this like they are absolutely as as you say uh unfuckwithable in, in in the parlance of like culturally you know they had the theme and courage you know courage and all that kind of stuff they've gotten through a war and an evacuation yeah a little bit of re restructuring um Anyone who wants to back that, even though, you know, revenues is, is, you know, rebuilding right now, uh, I think we'll get some of those. I just want to, I just want to say also revenues rebuilding north of a hundred thousand dollars in, yeah. in total revenue. Yeah. And yeah. it's still at about 60 K recurring revenue. Yeah. So yeah. it's still, yeah, it's we're not, not like this is nothing. And this is, this isn't, this isn't about a year and a half, which is, yeah. you know, in the fast world, that's strong. That's strong performance. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, and. So for me, it's about as a as a co-founder going out there and raising now, telling the story in a way that is true, right? I mean, not hiding the challenges, but also highlighting the intangibles of what we've just been through, the culture of the, of the team, the absolute commitment, the the pace at which our developing developments happening now. You know, we just hired like four engineers from Ukraine in the last six months they're really adding a lot to the to the fight and um just letting people see literally the potential of the product because it's easy to show and uh hey we, we just need a little bit of runway to get get finally get some of these long-term strategies to pay off amazing well with that we have to wrap um i just want to say before we do um you know ask that you subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter at ain uh, we release a newsletter on the first of every month. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, AIinventures.com. Um, and until next time, of course, I uh, want to say, you know, thank you for turning, tuning in. You know, peace, love. Have a great rest of your week.